All right, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So it is a, <clears throat> it's a running joke amongst our Wednesday night adult class that I always seem to find a way to make reference to Ephesians no matter what subject we're covering on that particular evening. <laughs> not without merit, I will admit. Um, so it should come as no surprise that given the occasion for this series of sermons that I'm uh, starting today, we're going to be looking at Ephesians. And uh, I have much I want to say in a very short amount of time. And so that's exactly what the inspired apostle did in this epistle to a church he dearly loved. He said a lot in a short amount of space. And that said, I need to make an acknowledgement here to everyone. Um, I know that I preach long sermons. I'm aware. And I know some of you don't particularly like having to sit through long sermons. Uh, (laughs) It's okay. You can laugh. (laughs) Um, I'm just bringing this up because I want you to understand. I really uh, have to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. So I'm asking that you be... Uh, patient with me and understanding with me if maybe I do go long on some of these sermons I'm going to try not to go long on at least all of them but uh, just please show some patience for me Um, the uh, Puritans called Sunday the market day for the soul okay and um, this is the time the saints are supposed to be equipped by the word of the Lord for the rest of the week that's the idea behind that So I don't mean to come off negative by pointing this out and just saying it out loud to everybody, but I don't mean that at all. I hope you don't think that's my intent. It's not. But I I just want you to know where I'm coming from in preaching longer sermons sometimes, okay? Um, I think that these are important things. God has given us the scriptures that we, we may be competent and equipped for every good work, and I'm convinced that we should consider these things and not just in a cursory way. I don't just want to scratch the surface. I want to dive deep. So, I I preach that way. That comes from conviction. So, um, anyway, I'll move on. Back to the epistle now. Um, Let's let's begin by reading, and then I'll try to get into our exposition. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. That's what we're going to be looking at today. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Uh, who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven above, we come to you again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage we've just read. Lord, we pray that you would help us now to hear what you are saying, what the Holy Spirit inspired the apostle to say. Lord, I pray that you would get my human weakness out of the way and confess my need for you. I also pray that you would get uh, everyone else's human weakness out of the way and help them to receive this message. And Lord, I pray that this would be edifying to your saints. And ultimately, I pray that this would lead to us glorifying the name of the triune God. And it is in the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, I pray this. Amen. All right, so the, uh, the epistle begins with the human author identifying himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We read of at least some of Paul's history uh, with the Ephesian church from Acts just a few moments ago. Um, Paul was the apostle Christ sent to found and then nurture this church in its earliest years before he would move on to other projects and eventually would be martyred uh, for his loyalty to our king, Jesus. He wrote this epistle while he was imprisoned and probably while he was under house arrest in Rome in the early 60s. That's probably the time frame we're looking at here. So really not that long before his death. This, is, um, this would have been really within just a few years of his death. It is significant that he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus because what that means is that the words contained in the epistle carry the authority of Christ Jesus himself. Uh, a very helpful definition I found for an apostle is that he is, quote, properly someone sent or commissioned focusing back on the authority or commissioning of the sender. Or more simply, he is, quote, a messenger, envoy, delegate, one commissioned by another to represent him in some way. So what Paul is saying by identifying himself as an apostle of God is that he is the messenger and the message is from Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, it's not Paul's message, it's Christ's message. Paul's just carrying the mail, so to speak. He's also explicitly identifying our Lord as the Messiah to whom the Old Testament scriptures were pointing by ascribing to him the title Christ. That's significant as well. And not only that, but Paul explicitly states this authority to represent Jesus Christ in this way was given to him by the will of God. That is, it was the Father's will that Paul should be chosen as Christ's representative, specifically in this case to the Ephesian church. So Paul writes, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. From the passage that uh, Michael just read a few moments ago, I think it's pretty obvious, Paul had a favorable view of the church at Ephesus. He spent years pouring into them. There was love there. And they loved him back. 
he referred to them as saints or those called out of the world who were located in Ephesus. I believe this wording actually helps to see in some fashion the relationship between the universal or the Catholic church that we confess every Lord's Day and the local church. Paul recognized this one church located in this one place, but he also implicitly recognizes there are saints located in other places besides Ephesus to the saints who are in Ephesus. Okay? Paul is commending the Ephesians by calling them faithful in Christ Jesus. This is not a uh, Galatians top letter. I can't believe you are moved so quickly. No, this is a letter to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. This was a church into which Paul had poured a considerable amount of time teaching them the apostolic doctrine. The Ephesian church at least to this point, had remained faithful to the teaching that they had been given by Paul. And even when the church appears in Revelation and receives a rebuke for their lack of love, Jesus himself still acknowledges their faithfulness to the doctrine that they had received. The Ephesians had tested those who were false apostles and found them to be just that, false. Christ commended them for, for that, as well as their toil, their patient endurance, and their hatred for evil. Yes, this was a church that would eventually receive Christ's rebuke, but he also commended them. This was a faithful church. So the apostolic commendation here seems quite appropriate. This truly was a church that was faithful in Christ Jesus. And Paul finishes with his customary greeting, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And much of the remainder of the book fleshes out what that statement actually looks like, interestingly enough. But consider the blessings contained within the statement itself. What gracious, unmerited blessings we have in Christ that we could be at peace with God. Sinners now, those who have rebelled against God, and he says to you who are at peace with God. And not only that, not only are we at peace with God, we're able to call him Father. As J.I. Packer rightly states, quote, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. He's right. He makes his enemies his children. <clears throat> so, Paul then launches into this letter here. That, that was just the greeting. <laughs> um, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul pronounces blessing to God the Father. But this is really just a return of blessing as it is in response to the Father having blessed us in Christ with quite literally every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's all of them. He doesn't leave any out. He gives us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Even as He, the Father, chose us in Him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him 
That is, prior to God saying, let there be light, he made a prior choice that he would call out certain sinners from the world in Christ for the purpose that they should walk uprightly before him. Or to say that another way, that they should rightly image him. In his epistle to the Romans, I think Paul more specifically explains what this means when he says, for those whom he, that is God the Father, foreknew, he also predestined, what did he predestine them to? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We read in Genesis that mankind was made in the image of God, but then mankind fell into a state of sin. While the image of God remains, it is broken and marred by our sin. But scripture tells us that Jesus, the God-man, is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. And not only that, but that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, the one in whom we fell into sin, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, our new covenant head, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He's predestined us to be renewed. He's predestined us to be born again. He's predestined us to look like Christ. But again, all of this was because of the free will choice of God, not of us, of God the Father before time began to make us such in Christ. In love, I could actually spend some time on that, but I'll just, in love, he predestined us. Very few sentence fragments have caused as much controversy in church history as that one. <laughs> and its corresponding verse in uh, Romans 8, which I just read. It was Augustine of Hippo who wrote a prayer, something along the lines of, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Well, this uh, prayer that he wrote somehow made its way to this British theologian named Pelagius. And uh, Pelagius was absolutely appalled at this. Um, he, he held to this idea that man has an absolutely free will and that man is able to choose God through this free will and thus essentially saving himself by his own merit because he made the right choice or choices, if you will. Pelagius denied the doctrine of original sin, that we are fallen in Adam, and believed that God's grace consisted of a combination of man's free will and the scriptures which contain God's law and the teaching of Christ. So, in other words, he would say, yes, man needs grace, but what he means by that is man needs to be able to make a choice. And man needs to have all of the information to make the right choice, so it's grace in the scriptures as well. But once he has the scriptures and he has his free will, then God has bestowed his grace and now man needs to do the right thing. That's what Pelagius thought. 
Well, Pelagianism was rightly condemned by the church as heresy, but it has never really gone away, unfortunately. It would manifest itself in a more subtle and deceptive form known as semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagians recognize man as fallen with a propensity towards sin. A little better. That's true. Man is fallen with a propensity towards sin. They understand that man cannot save himself merely by an act of his will, but rather that he needs divine intervention if he is ever to be saved. So if God just leaves man alone, man's hopelessly lost. Okay, so far so good. However, this is where it goes off the rails. The idea is that God had put forward Jesus as a propitiatory sacrifice for all of mankind without exception as opposed to all mankind without distinction. So that is every single human being who ever lives, Christ atoned for them instead of all kinds of men, Jew and Gentile. Okay? Um, God essentially has now done his part to save each and every human. And each and every human is now responsible for making a decision for Christ. In other words, salvation is synergistic, meaning God and man work together in the salvation of man. God does... You want to put it this way, 99% of the work and man's got to push it 1% over with his right choice that God has graciously enabled him to make with prevenient grace. Um, while this is the majority view among American evangelicals today, it plainly contradicts the teaching we read right here in Ephesians. In love, meaning God the Father chose to set his loving affection on this certain group of people identified here as us, but it's referring to God's elect. So God set his love on these people, and since he freely chose to set his love on this certain sinful group of people, he predestined them, or that is, destined beforehand. Meaning, it was not dependent on anything in them, but truly God's free and sovereign choice of them for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now I've heard all sorts of explanations to try to get out of the plain meaning of that text. Uh, there's this idea that God looked down the corridors of time and saw who would make the right decision, would make a decision for Christ, and then because they did that, uh, as he looked down the corridors of time, uh, he predestined those people for adoptions as sons on the basis of that choice he saw that they would make in time. But again, nowhere in this passage do we see that any of these blessings in Christ depend on us. You have to import that into the text. That is not there. It is plainly not there. You're adding to the word of God when you say that. They are expressly said, the elect, they are expressly said to be wholly dependent upon God throughout this passage and I would even argue throughout Scripture. I've also heard the idea put forward that the predestination in this passage is of Christ for his work as the mediator. That's worse, I'm just being honest with you, because the predestination here is not said to be anything of the sort. The plain meaning of the text is that before time began, God chose and predestined his elect people to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And this is not uh, 
plainly right there it says, who was predestined? We were predestined. Or, as Paul says it, us. Now, we were predestined in Christ. But that just kind of makes the point, doesn't it? It's all dependent on God. We, we, uh, that's another argument, actually. I'll, I'll just bring that up. That's another argument I've heard. If God predestines who's going to be saved beforehand, then what's the point? What's the point of evangelism? What's the point of Christ even coming? Because God's already made his choice. Well, that's the thing. You can't separate the predestination from the in Christ part. We are predestined, but we're predestined in Christ for these things. Okay, So never can you separate Christ from the predestinating work. Um, again, this predestination unto adoption is according to the purpose of his will. Not in any way according to the will of man, so that it might be to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So again, still in Christ. So far from causing us to feel anxiety, and let's be honest, this does cause people anxiety. God being absolutely sovereign causes some people anxiety because in some way they think that somehow that means God's responsible for our sin. It doesn't, but that's what, that's what the anxiety is over, I think, if we're being fair. Some people just treat free will as a sacred cow and they don't want to sacrifice it, but I really think most people, it, it, they mean well because they think it charges God with evil. It does not. It shouldn't cause us to feel anxiety. This should cause us, according to this passage, this should cause us to worship God for his gracious choice to adopt to us, fallen sinners. It should help us breathe a sigh of relief because I don't earn it in any way, not even by making the right choice. Even that is the gift of God. The faith that I have in Christ. Why would that cause anxiety? That should cause you to breathe a sigh of relief. And then worship. Oh God, you set your grace upon me. I didn't deserve it. You could have rightly destroyed me, but you didn't. Instead, you made me your son through Christ. And blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. According to Strong's Concordance, the definition of this word, redemption, is a release affected by payment of ransom. Okay, that's the idea here. This raises the question, from what did God free us by the payment of his blood? Because that's the ransom, his blood. Well, we're at the start of the Christmas season here. Um, so let's just recall a part of the Christmas story for a moment. An angel has mysteriously visited this young virgin woman betrothed to be married to this honorable Jewish man. And suddenly she is found to be pregnant and he knows it is not his. Hmm. Her explanation for why she had become Pregnant must have seemed outlandish to him. I've tried to think about I've tried to think about this a lot. How does Joseph take this? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, what do you mean the Holy Spirit has miraculously put a baby in your womb? 
And, and you really expect me to believe a virgin can give birth? Nevertheless, Joseph was an honorable man and as such was considering how to put her away without shaming her. And then an angel appeared to him in a dream confirming that the story of how she came to be pregnant was in fact true. His betrothed was in fact still a virgin and that child in her womb was there because a mighty work of the Holy Spirit had been wrought in her and he was going to be expected to take the very Son of God and raise him. So we've gone from this fantastical story, it's hard to believe, and now we're trying to, oh no, now my, my, my beautiful soon-to-be bride, I've got to put her away, like life is ruined now, and then all of a sudden an angel appears to him, and okay, this is even harder to believe now. <laughs> I've got to raise the Son of God. What must have he what must he have been thinking? Um, anyway, but that's a side note. The angel then says this to Joseph in the dream. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now it doesn't say he will save them from the devil, it doesn't say he will save them from hell. It's more encompassing than that. He will save them from their sins. There's our answer right there. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. God looks at us, pitiful as we are, and he sees righteous. He sees righteousness because of Jesus. Or as Paul puts it somewhere else in Scripture, in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What are we saying around this time of year? He lifts, he lifts this, he saves us far as the curse is found, right? The way to the world. He renews us. He takes away our sin. Not only that, he gives us his righteousness. That's why God sees us as righteous. And he did this according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. How rich is God in grace? I'm going to give credit where uh, credit's due here. I, I remember the first time I heard that question asked. Seth Benefield asked that question. How rich is God in grace? He's an infinite wellspring of gracious riches, is he not? He is rich enough that he could lavish upon us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in fact, we read here that he does just that toward us who are in Christ. There's not one spiritual blessing that he does not lavish upon his elect sons and daughters in Christ. The idea of a time lavished is an overabundance. Okay? He didn't just put, he lavished us with like we're up to our eyeballs and blessings. Okay? 
He did this in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, it always has been the will and purpose of God the Father that at the consummation of human history, all things in creation, things both in heaven and earth, should be united in Christ. That's always been the plan. There are ways in which Christ has already accomplished this mission from the Father. You've heard the already, not yet, right? Well, this applies here. The incarnation itself sees God and man united in the one person of Jesus Christ. We confess that Jesus is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And so likewise, those united to Christ also have been united to God in Him. And we also read throughout the rest of Ephesians that He unites Jew and Gentile. And He unites the church in Himself as the body of Christ. He brings unity within the structure of the family. And He unites all of these to God. So He brings unity on a horizontal plane. And he brings unity vertically. He brings peace between men. And he brings peace between God and man. These are aspects of how Christ already has brought unity to all things in heaven and on earth. The heavenly hosts, that is the heavenly armed forces. Okay, so think about who's saying this. That's what makes it so significant. The heavenly hosts. Proclaim to the shepherds at the birth of our Lord, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. This was central to the mission of Christ in his incarnation, that he would reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. But there is a sense in which the mission is not yet complete as well. After his resurrection, Christ commissioned his disciples to go and disciple all the nations. And the basis of the commission was that he had been given all authority in heaven and on earth. The discipling of the nations is aimed toward this uniting of all things in Christ until the consummation of this age and the inauguration of a new heaven and a new earth. This has been God's plan before the foundation of the world. And he has blessed us with this spiritual blessing that we get to take part in its coming to fruition. Oh, we don't do it. We, we do it in the sense that a hammer hits a nail. Okay? You don't credit the hammer for that. But nevertheless, we get to be the hammer. <laughs> we get to take part. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Again, that inheritance is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places which is lavished upon us, having been predestined, that is, predestined for adoption as sons, which is why we would be receiving an inheritance from the Father. And this according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, that purpose is to unite all things in Christ. And here's the reason we can be confident that he will accomplish his purpose. 
God is absolutely sovereign such that he is able to work quite literally all things to the accomplishment of his ends. That includes the creation of the cosmos itself, Satan's rebellion, the fall of man, all the natural phenomenon we see, all the events in human history, and yes, even the sometimes sacred cow known as the free will of man. God is sovereign over all of that. God works all things according to the counsel of his own will without reference to anything outside of himself for the achievement of his own purposes. Jason preached on this passage last week in Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. The salvation of the elect is no different. The Father's purpose in blessing us with all spiritual blessings in Christ is that those who were the first to hope in Christ and also those of us who have later set our hope in Christ might be to the praise of His, that is Christ's, glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We believe in Christ in response to hearing the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, preached and proclaimed. And this reminds us of the importance that we should do just that. We should preach the gospel so that our fellow image bearers of God would have that image renewed and restored in Christ and that they may share in this inheritance with us as adopted sons and daughters of God. In fact, that's part of what it means to share in that image. We obey God. And God said, go disciple the nations. <clears throat> now, the purpose of a seal is to mark out something as belonging to the owner of the seal. That's what a seal is. God has placed his seal, the Holy Spirit, upon all believers. This was the same spirit promised through the prophet Joel. You read about that earlier. Um, this same spirit, this promise was fulfilled. This same spirit was given on the day of Pentecost. Now it is the same spirit that has been given even to the Gentiles who believe in Christ now. This same spirit is the guarantee or the down payment or the earnest payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, there is an already not yet dynamic here. The Holy Spirit serves as the down payment of our inheritance. He is a big part of that inheritance. And he indwells believers now as he applies the work of Christ to them and guides them into all truth. We have that now. However, he serves as the earnest or the down payment until we acquire the remainder of the inheritance at the consummation of all things. 
already, but not yet. In other words, these things already belong to us. But as far as what we actually experience, oh, there's more. <clears throat> this work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of believers, in sealing them, is to the praise of His own glory. That is the Spirit. So, as we come to a close, there are a few things for us to take away from this opening passage of the book. If you're a note taker, I'm finally going to do point, point, point. So here you go. <laughs> point number one. God is sovereign. Over and over again, we read throughout this passage that God has chosen his elect people according to the purpose of his will and that he works all things uh, according to the counsel of his will for the accomplishment of that same purpose. So number one, God is sovereign. Number two, salvation is a work of the triune God. Or maybe I should say it this way, it is a triune work of God. Throughout this passage, we see that the Father purposed, <clears throat> the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applies the work of salvation to his elect people. Point number three. <clears throat> As a sovereign work of the triune God, salvation is from beginning to end by his grace alone. Nowhere do we see that the elect merit any of these blessings. Quite the opposite. It is merely by the gracious choice of God that he would lavish his blessings upon us rebellious creatures of the dirt. It's by grace alone. Point number four. God's chosen means for bringing his elect into saving relationship with himself is faith in Christ Jesus, which comes by hearing the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, proclaimed. That is, Jesus, uh, <clears throat> that is, we must preach, excuse me, that is, we must preach the law to show people their sin and their need for a Savior, and then we must give them the good news that God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So we have a sovereign, triune, gracious work called our faith. We are saved by faith alone. All of that is wrapped up in saved by faith alone. Point number five. <clears throat> every step of our salvation is wrought in Christ alone. I'm just going to read back through this, and I just, I, just want you, I just want you to see this. Every single one of these blessings is tied to Christ. Okay, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. <clears throat> in him, that is, in Christ, 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. What's his purpose? Which he should set forth in Christ, set it forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, <clears throat> might be to the praise of his glory in Christ. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire, acquire possession of it, the praise of his glory. I just wanted to read back through that to see I just want you to see, every single one of these blessings is somehow tied to Christ. It's in Christ, it's through Christ. Okay, Jesus is central. <clears throat> every step of our salvation is wrought in Christ alone. Point number six. Our salvation is not about us in the ultimate sense. I remember, what's her name? Joel Osteen's wife. I think Victoria's her name. I remember hearing her once say, when you worship God, it's not really about God, it's about you, because that's what makes God happy. I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like that. Okay, listen, that's <laughs> profoundly false, y'all. <clears throat> this passage is very clear. Our salvation actually is not about us, it's about God. Or even if you want to get more specific, it's about Christ. The Father's purpose in all this is in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers, and that he would unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. It is the will of the Father that in everything Christ might be preeminent, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sound like that's about us, does it? Oh, we benefit from it, don't misunderstand me. <laughs> we are the one receiving these spiritual blessings, okay? This is not a bad thing that it's not about us, but it's not. It's about the one who's blessing us. It's about the gift giver, not the gift. And in fact, the greatest gift is the gift giver. And this brings us to the final point, number seven. <clears throat> that God's salvation of his elect is ultimately to the praise of his glorious grace. Each of the divine persons has glory ascribed to him in this passage. Look back through it. Verse 6 ascribes glory to the Father. Verse 12 ascribes glory to the Son. And verse 14 ascribes glory to the Holy Spirit. God's gracious salvation whereby we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places should cause us to respond in worship and praise to the name of the triune God who has blessed us. So may he help us to do that today and every day as we live our lives for his glory forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, 
What do we even say to these things? We are so thankful for all of these blessings that we've just talked about. We've just seen that you've told us through your word are ours in Christ. Lord, we do want to ascribe praise and glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you. You have blessed us to take part in all of this. You have made your enemies your sons and your daughters. Oh Lord, help us to live obedient lives. Not to in any way keep up rewards for ourselves, but rather because we love you and this pleases you. You have saved us. You have made us sons and daughters. You have freed us to live in this way. So help us to do that. To live in the freedom that has been purchased by Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.